Well, good morning. If we've never met before, my name is Chris Thayer. As, as uh, Talbot said just a few minutes ago, I'm our pastor of discipleship here at Good Shepherd. Really excited to be here today. Uh, and I'm incredibly excited to be able to talk about one of my absolute favorite passages of Scripture uh, in the entire library that we call the Bible, much less in the book of Daniel. Uh, if you have your Bibles with you, that's great. You can go ahead and open your Bibles up to Daniel chapter 3. If you don't have your Bibles with you, that's okay. Uh, the words are going to be up on the screen, whether you're joining us in person or at home. Uh, and we go through all of that effort to ensure that you have an encounter with Scripture because we find it so incredibly important that you are able to engage with the Scriptures yourselves. We, we like to remind ourselves of, of two things every week when we read the Bible together. And the first one is this. Even though this looks like a book, it's actually not a book. It's a library. It's a collection of 66 different books written by a number of different authors over a long period of time. And perhaps most importantly, it's written in different writing styles. And, and we like to remind ourselves of that because it helps us to remember to read Scripture in context. And the other thing that we like to remind ourselves of every week, it, and you might not believe this yet, and that's okay, we simply want to let you know where we stand in leadership here at Good Shepherd, and that's that we believe that unlike any other book or any other library in the world, that this one is uniquely inspired, eternal, and true. And so whenever we read it together, we do this sort of odd thing where we lift it up. Not because we worship the Bible, we don't, but because we worship the God who inspired the Bible, and we want to show in a tangible way that we stand alone under his authority and nobody else's. And the other thing that I want to do before I say anything else is go before that very God in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you so much that you did inspire the library that we call the Bible. And that, uh, Lord, that um, even though these letters and in in this history wasn't written to us, it was preserved for us. And Lord, I pray that, that you would uh, empty me of myself this morning. And I pray that you would fill me with you. I pray that my words would not be my own, but that they would be what you would have me to say in these moments. Lord, I pray for all of us that you would wake us up to the presence of your Holy Spirit and the work that he's doing in our lives, both individually and collectively. And I pray that we wouldn't walk out of this space, that we wouldn't hear this message and walk away forgetting what it is that you've done in our midst, but instead that we would be changed people, people who are becoming more and more like your son, Jesus. And I pray that we would follow his example well. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, a, a number of years ago, a friend of mine here at Good Shepherd approached me and asked me if I would be willing to pray for one of their family members who was going through a really serious surgery. And one of my great honors and privileges as a pastor is to be with people during some of the most vulnerable and intimate moments of their lives. And so I enthusiastically said yes. I woke up really morning, really early in the morning of the surgery and, and I drove to the hospital and when I got to the hospital, I found out that my new friend was already back being prepped for the surgery. So I waited a few minutes in the waiting room and then once they finished prepping him, I went back 
as he was in that staging area between the preparation and the actual surgery. And I got to know him a little bit more. And we chatted for just a few moments and shared some of our stories with each other. And, and eventually we would pray. And when I prayed for him, I prayed for two of the same things that I pray for people every single time, virtually every single time that they're going through a serious surgery like this. I prayed that the doctors would have great wisdom. And I prayed that there wouldn't be any complications, that the doctors would have great wisdom and that there wouldn't be any complications. And after we finished praying, we, we said amen and they wheeled him back to the surgery room and I got back in my car and drove to the church for the rest of my day of work. And, and I would find out later over the course of that day and over the coming days that actually the doctors didn't have great wisdom and that there were complications, that because of a mistake by the doctors that my new friend would have serious health implications that would last for the rest of his life. And I remember being, being, having a really difficult time with this because I said to God, you know, hey, I, I prayed specifically for this, God. I prayed that the doctors would have great wisdom. I prayed that there wouldn't be any complications, and yet they didn't, and there were. Why didn't you say yes to my prayer? Was, was there a problem with my faith? Did I say something wrong? Am, am I in the right line of work? If this is how you respond to a prayer that I prayed and, and honestly believed, what, what, what is it? What is it about my faith that was wrong in those moments? And perhaps you know the kind of feeling that I'm talking about. It's, it's that marriage that you prayed for, that you prayed that it would be beautiful, like we talk about all the time around here, for a beautiful marriage, but it shattered instead. It's that prayer that you prayed that you wouldn't get that diagnosis that you received anyway. It's that prayer for that loved one that you prayed that they would get better. And they ended up passing. And we wonder in those moments, what, what is it? What is it maybe that, that we did wrong? What is it about our faith? Why didn't God say Yes to our prayer. Why didn't God say yes to our prayer? Now, several months ago, my, my life group and I, we were going through the book of Daniel together. And I love the book of Daniel. I've read it a number of times. And, and when we got to chapter 3, I was really excited because it was one of, it's one of my favorite stories in all of Scripture. There's fantastic imagery and, and this, this great healing by God for these, this group of men and, and this deliverance from death. We're going to find out about in just a little bit. But I've, I've read this story tens of times before. And this time that I read it, with that in mind, with a prayer that I had prayed several years ago, all of a sudden I noticed something new. I noticed something that I had completely missed every other time, something that spoke into the problem that I had with my faith. You see, I would learn that, that my problem had everything to do with faith, but not in the way that I was thinking about it. 
When we get to chapter 3 in the book of Daniel, we, we, we learn in chapter 1 that Daniel and his three friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, were alive during one of the most tumultuous times in all of Israel's history. You see, they had a covenant. They had an agreement with God, the people of Israel. And God told the people of Israel, if you do what I tell you to, if you live the way that I've called you to live, if you take care of the fatherless, the poor, the widow, the foreigner among you, if you don't have any other gods before me, then things are going to go well for you. But if you don't, then they won't go well. And after centuries of disobedience, after centuries of God pleading with the people of Israel to turn around and to turn towards him, he finally handed them over to the desires of their hearts and said, fine, if you don't want to be led by me, you will be led by another and you will find out that you had it much better with me, that I am much more gracious. And the superpower of the day, Babylon, was the one who would eventually come down to Jerusalem. A very strategic piece of land would come down to Jerusalem and completely destroy and completely demolish the entire city, but not before taking out the best and the brightest from in those cities, like they did with every city that they conquered. Because they knew that they needed help to rule their growing empire. So they would take the best and the brightest out of these cities, and they would put them through what we might call cultural rehabilitation training. Actually, very similar to what the modern-day Uyghurs are going through in China, cultural rehabilitation training. So the Babylonian Empire would teach Daniel and his three friends all about the Babylonian gods, all about their culture, all about their language, all about their customs. And he would even give, they would even give them Babylonian names. They would replace their Hebrew names, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, with, with three names that you might recognize a little bit more than those three, and that's Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Babylonian names because Babylon had taken them out of Israel and put them through this cultural rehabilitation training. And they so distinguished themselves in this training. They did such a good job that the Babylonian king, King Nebuchadnezzar, put them in high positions in the Babylonian government. And, and when we get to chapter 3, we learn that not only did King Nebuchadnezzar want to unite this, this, this growing empire with all different kinds of cultures by having leaders from all of these different areas, but he also wanted to unite them around sort of a common God, something that they could all worship together. Because again, he was absolutely brilliant and knew that he needed to unite the people because they were all disunited from one another because they came from all of these cultures that they had conquered. So the Babylonian king creates this God, but remember Daniel and Hananiah, Mishael and Azariah or Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, they knew that one of the reasons that they were in this mess to begin with was because they didn't listen to the commands of God, the primary of which was that you should have no other gods before me. So what happens in this story? When we turn to Daniel chapter 3, we find this out. In chapter 3, verse 1, we find out King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold 60 cubits high and 6 cubits wide. That's about 90 feet high and 9 feet wide. That's a lot of gold. 
and set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. He then summoned the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials, all of the important people. He summoned all of them to come up to the dedication of the image, this big statue that he had set up. So the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials assembled for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up, and they stood before it. Then the herald loudly proclaimed, nations and peoples of every language, this is what you are commanded to do. As soon as you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the zither, the lyre, the harp, the pipe, all kinds of music, you must fall down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into the blazing furnace. Therefore, as soon as they heard the sound of the horn, the flute, the zither, the lyre, the harp, hip-hop, country, uh, classical, all kinds of music, all the nations and all the peoples of every language fell down and worshipped the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. So he takes this, this cultural identifier, the kind of music that they listened to in each one of these various different countries that they had conquered, and they said, anytime that you hear something that distinguishes you, I'm going to unite you to worship this image of gold that I have set up. But what what are Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, or Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego going to do since they know that they're not supposed to bow down and worship this God? Will, will they fall in line or will they be out of step with the culture around them? At this time, some astrologers came forward and denounced the Jews. They said to King Nebuchadnezzar, May the king live forever. Your majesty has issued a decree that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, the flute, the zither, the lyre, the harp, the pipe, all kinds of music must fall down and worship the image of gold, and that whoever does not fall down and worship will be thrown into a blazing furnace. But there are some Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who pay no attention to you, your majesty." They neither serve your gods nor worship the image of gold that you have set up. So these astrologers, these other important people inside of Babylon who are probably jealous that the king had set Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in high positions, they tattletale. They run to the king and they say, hey, you know those those Jews that we don't really like? Well, they're not obeying you, king. You should probably throw them into the blazing furnace. You should probably just go ahead and kill them. They took tattletaling to a whole nother level. So how's the king going to respond? This king that took these three friends and put them in high positions himself, how's he going to respond? That they disobeyed his order. Furious with rage, Nebuchadnezzar summoned Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So these men were brought before the king, and Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold I have set up. Now, when you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the zither, the lyre, I never thought that I would say zither four times in a row (laughs) during a sermon. Zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music. If you are ready to fall down and worship the image I made, very good. But if you do not worship it, you will be thrown immediately 
into a blazing furnace, then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? What God will be able to rescue you from my hand? See, Nebuchadnezzar does something pretty brash. He actually sets himself up over and above and against the God of this universe, probably the whole time thinking in the back of his mind, you really, you really are going to continue to worship that God, the God that I just bested in Babel in Jerusalem when I destroyed the city and completely demolished the temple, not realizing the whole time that Nebuchadnezzar was really a pawn in the hand of the God of this universe. So really, that's the God that you're going to rely on, Nebuchadnezzar says. And, and I love the response of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, or Daniel, or Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And, and the rest of the story is great. Uh, you should go home and read it later on today and see what happens. God, God does some pretty incredible things. But, but what I want to focus in on today is the response of these three men when the options were to bow down and worship an image of gold or be thrown into a blazing furnace to become martyrs, to be murdered because they wouldn't worship any other God. What is their response? And I absolutely love it. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to him, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it. And he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold that you have set up. Even if he does not, your majesty, we want you to know that we will not serve your gods or the image of gold that you have set up. And I love their response. But, but every other time that I had read this story and every other time that I had read this response, I either wanted to quickly get to the end where I saw something really cool happen, and so I missed what they said, or I focused in on two things. Our God can do it and our God will do it. But when I was studying this for my life group and I thought long and hard about this wrestling that I had going on with my faith, I, all of a sudden I realized that, that Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Shadmach, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that their trust wasn't in the reality that they were going to be saved from the furnace. It wasn't in that blessing Instead, their trust was in God because they said, even if he doesn't rescue us, we will not bow down to your gods. We will continue to serve the one and only and true God. Our God can save us. Our God will save us. But even if he doesn't, we will continue to trust him alone. You see, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, they knew something incredibly important about faith. They knew that faith was not believing that God would say yes, that it was trusting him, even if he said no. Did you catch that? 
Faith isn't believing that God will say yes. It's trusting him, even if he says no. You see, there's this terrible theology that exists. It's largely an American theology, though unfortunately it's been exported to other places in the world, particularly a number of countries in Africa. And this theology teaches that whatever it is that you want from God, maybe that's good health, maybe that's material possessions, but whatever it is that you want from God, all you need to do is ask and believe enough that God will do it, and he will. If you believe enough that God will give you the blessing that you're asking for, then he will do it. If you're sick and you want to be healed, then, then it's, on, it's on you to believe enough. And if you do, you'll be healed. If you want some sort of a material blessing, believe it enough, and he'll do it. He'll give you whatever it is that you're looking for. Now, Aside from, from the gymnastics that you have to do to get anything even closely resembling that theology from the library that we call the Bible, aside from all of the passages that you have to just completely ignore, aside from all of the examples in people's lives that you have to just brush over like the Apostle Paul or, I don't know, even the person of Jesus, Aside from all of that, the biggest mistake that this theology, that this understanding of how our relationship with God works is it actually makes us out to be God. Because if all I have to do is come up with enough of this thing inside of me called faith and I can get whatever I want, then no longer is God really the one who's giving the blessing. It's me who's working to achieve it. You see, when we turn God into a cosmic vending machine that operates on a currency only we can provide, then we diminish him and we deify ourselves. We diminish him and we deify ourselves. You see, Jesus never asked his disciples to have faith in their ability to have faith. He asked them to have faith in him. Faith inherently is trust in someone or something other than ourselves. Faith isn't believing that God will say yes. It's trusting him even when he says no. And so what does this have to do with the prayer that I prayed a number of years ago and my wrestling with it? Well, everything. You see, the mistake I made when I was wrestling with why didn't God say yes to my prayer is that I was making it all about me. I was making it about what I needed to do differently to get the desire that I wanted. Instead, my job is not to do that when I pray for people at the hospital. My job is to say like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, my God can do it. My God will do it. But even if he doesn't, we will continue to trust you because you are a good God and you are worthy of our trust. And so where, where is it for you? Where is it for you that faith has been more about what you can produce inside of yourself than, than trust in him 
with whatever it is that you're walking through, are you willing to not only give God your sound mind, but your mind that's racked with depression and anxiety as well? Are you willing to give God not only your good health, but your cancer diagnosis as well? Are you willing to give God not only that job that you really want, but the one that you feel like you've been stuck in for the past two, three, four years? Faith isn't believing that God will say yes. It's trusting him even when he says no. Now, please do not hear what I am not saying. I am not going to pretend to know why God didn't say yes to my prayer those years ago. That's not my job. God is a big God and he can answer for himself, so I'm not even going to try. However, what I can say is that the biblical authors knew that we would have a tough time in life at times that things wouldn't always be the blessings that we want. The end of Romans chapter 8, the end of Hebrews chapter 11, the beginning of James chapter 1, all recognize in unison with one another that we will go through difficult times. We will go through hardships. We will go through trial. But at the end of the day, we can trust the goodness of God, that he has us in his mind, that he has the goodness of his kingdom in mind. Not as some sort of a trite saying, but out of a recognition of the reality that we serve the God of this universe who knew that we made a mess of this whole place. And he took his only son, the one through whom by his word all of creation was made. He took that very son and he sent him into our world, and Jesus came freely into our world, into the mess that we created. He lived a sinless and a perfect life. He was murdered on a cross on our behalf, taking the punishment that we deserved on himself, the God of this universe, in the person of Jesus crucified for the mess that we made. He was dead and buried in a tomb. And on the third day, God said, I'm not done. I am not done with this world. As a matter of fact, I am going to completely demolish sin and death for all time. And so he took Jesus and he rose him up from the grave. He gave him a resurrected body, a resurrection that we have. We have the privilege of being able to share in. Faith isn't believing that God will say yes. It's trusting him. It's trusting that God who did that with Jesus in our lives. And I don't want any single one of us, I don't want any single one of us, myself included, to ever put ourselves in a position that only God alone can fill. Because I can't come up with enough faith. I can't come up with enough belief. And you know what? It's not about me. It's not about any of us. Not in the way that we often think about it. Instead, we can put 
our lives into the hands of the living God of this universe who loves us and cares for us and knows what's good for us more than we could ever ask or imagine. Faith isn't believing that God will say yes. It's trusting him even when he says no. So where, where is it for you? Where, where do you need to stop trusting in your own ability to have faith when you approach God, but instead you can have the same kind of faith that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego have? My God can do it. My God will do it. But even if he doesn't, I will continue to trust him with whatever happens in my life. Faith, it's not believing that God will say yes. That's far too low for our God. Instead, it's trusting him, even when he says no. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, you are a good God. And thank you so much that we can trust you Lord, thank you that you have given us the vehicle of prayer, that, that it actually matters, that it, it actually makes a difference. But Lord, we also just want to submit everything that we pray for to you and to your goodness and your kindness. And Lord, there's so much stuff that happens that we don't understand and we don't always know why. But Lord, at the end of the day, I pray that all of us would have trust, not trust in the blessing but instead, trust in our Savior. Because you know what's good for us. And we know that ultimately you've defeated sin and death. And I pray that we would walk in that victory and that we would give you the trust that you deserve, that we wouldn't just simply want you to say yes, but that we would also trust you even when we say no. Lord, give us that kind of faith. And I, and I pray for all of us, Lord, that we would have the same kind of response as that man in the gospel when we struggle with that trust in you, that we would say, I believe. Help my unbelief. Help us to trust you, both with the blessings and with the difficulties of life. In the name of Jesus, our risen Savior, we pray. Amen. Amen.